A garrison is a safe place where an army gathers. In the same way, the Disability Garrison podcast is a place for the army of disability rights advocates to gather and discuss complex issues. We are unafraid to identify problems in our world and have difficult conversations about them. But we are not just here to complain. We spend our time brainstorming solutions with generals in the disability rights movement. Together, we take action to make positive change and lead the fight for justice and equality. My name is Hallie Carmichael. My name is Michael Murray. This is the Disability Garrison. Thank you so much for joining the Disability Garrison. Today, we're going to talk about the independent living movement. The independent living movement started in the 1970s in Berkeley, California, with Ed Roberts and a lot of other people with disabilities who were attending the University of California at Berkeley. The goal was to ensure that those of us with disabilities have the right to live independently in the community. And the concept was is that we could be supported by our peers and by those around us, people with disabilities who have that lived experience. And they set up the first Center for Independent Living, and it was incredible. The impact that it had for those of us with disabilities and the vision that we received that we can be fully integrated into the community was phenomenal. In 1978, the Federal Rehabilitation Act uh, was amended and included this national network of Centers for Independent Living, and it really changed it from a medical model where we as people with disabilities need to be fixed to a community model and a recognition that when you change the community around us, when you change the environment around us, we as people with disabilities can live in the community and contribute in the community and we deserve that right. And so through peer support, advocacy, skills training, information and referral, these independent living centers that are now across the country and have thousands of them are having a huge impact for those of us with disabilities. Unfortunately, IL philosophy is not really known. There are still so many that are trying to fix us as people with disabilities. So we're going to look at that problem today and talk about that. But we're also going to talk about the fact that Centers for Independent Living, as great an impact as they have, are still not accessible to everyone in the U.S. So our goal is to make sure that this valuable service is available to everybody throughout the U.S. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Those two things. How can we spread the IL philosophy and how can we ensure that everyone has access to a Center for Independent Living? Our guest today is absolutely phenomenal and you're going to love her. Thanks for joining us. I am so excited and pumped. You know, I say that every time, Holly, but I feel like we just get such good uh, folks to come on here and do interviews with us. But today, a longtime friend of ours, uh, an incredible advocate, Karen Tamley, is joining us. We're going to be talking about independent living philosophy. Karen, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no, thanks for being there. And for our listeners, Karen Tamley is the president and CEO of Access Living, one of the largest centers for independent living in the country, based in Chicago. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Karen. Great. Thank you. Um, So I'm a person with a disability myself. I was born um, with a disability called sacroiligenesis, and I've used a wheelchair all of my life, a manual wheelchair. I... I'm married. I have a daughter also um, that my husband, uh, Kevin, and I adopted that also has a multiple disabilities. 
physical learning disabilities, hearing loss, and she is now a uh, sophomore in high school. But I've been involved in the disability rights movement, the independent living movement, um, probably since I graduated from uh, college. I went to school at UC Berkeley, which was really, um, in many ways, a birthplace of the disability rights movement, independent living movement, right? And I had a chance when I was a student there to meet Ed Roberts and Judy Mm Heumann. But I didn't really become an advocate and activist until I left Berkeley. And I did an internship in Washington, D.C. for a disability rights attorney um, named Tim Cook, who has since passed away. But um, he really got me started in the disability rights world. And... uh, so many amazing experiences. I only interned with him for just under two years, but he was one of the original writers of the ADA. He worked on the ADA, and when I was interning for him, he invited me to be on the White House lawn watching the ADA be signed into law. Yeah, he sent me down to the Capitol crawl, which as you know, was a really historic moment in the disability rights movement really pushing the passage of the ADA um, over the finish line. I don't and think many of our listeners may not know what the uh, what the ADA crawl was. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it was a demonstration at the U.S. Capitol where, you know, the ADA was being stalled. And so ADAPT and other disability rights activists really did a very, very visual display of the lack of accessibility in our country. And people got out of their wheelchairs and literally crawled up the steps of the Capitol. And um, it's a very iconic um, photo um, that's shown. I think it was really, really instrumental in helping um, secure the passage of the ADA. Well, and a realization that if you wanted access to those who are making decisions about your lives, uh, the inaccessibility of being able to do that. And I think it was it was a great picture, not just of the physical inaccessibility, but the the inaccessibility of our leaders to hear what we as people with disabilities needed. That's right. So just having those really grounding experiences early in my career was something that really set me on my career trajectory, um, working in the field of disability rights. I think just being on the White House lawn that day, July 26, 1990, I, even though I was born with my disability, I grew up in a time when I couldn't get on a bus because none of them were accessible. I couldn't cross the street independently because there were no curb ramps. My family, my friends had to routinely carry me into stores and restaurants, but I really had no idea how that day, the signing of the ADA into law, which has fundamentally changed my life Mm -hmm. and the life of millions of other disabled people. And now having a daughter with a disability, fast forward, right, 32, 33 years later, just seeing how different her life is from how mine was growing up. I wasn't even allowed to go to my neighborhood school until the fourth grade. So it wasn't until the passage of PL 92-142, right? Education of All Handicapped Children Act, (laughs) that really was kind of set me on the path towards inclusion. I remember being called into the principal's office in the third grade and being told that you're not gonna go to school here next year, you're gonna go to your neighborhood school. Um, And it's where my sister went, too. And for all those years, I wasn't able to be alongside her because simply because of my disability. And then I needed some additional assistance in school. And so that was life changing as well at a very young age. And then 
going into my neighborhood school where I was the only kid with a disability. Do you um, remember your first day? Oh yeah, I remember my first day. It was, it was scary, it was terrifying. Yeah. Coming from a school where it's all kids with disabilities and yeah. there is something like comforting about that. Like yeah. everyone right. yeah. um, is like you. And then going to a school where you're the only kid with a disability, it, it was very scary. But I ended up making friends and you know, doing well and going on to college, but... But that trailblazer opportunity, not only for you, and uh, but also for, for uh, just society to recognize that we, that us not being able to be in our schools with our peers has a negative impact on society and on us. Yeah. Um, and, and you breaking that barrier is so powerful. Yeah. But yeah. how amazing to have that lived experience where you've seen legislation being passed and kind of see the before and after and yes. then fast forward to to your daughter Dominica and and seeing how her childhood is different now that those things are have been in place for some time I mean that's just it's phenomenal and I'm sure makes you a better leader for, for this organization yeah and it keeps I think it keeps me hopeful about the future yeah um, you know when you're doing this work it's exhausting it's frustrating so many times you're just you're fighting against things. Yes. Um, but I think at every ADA anniversary for me, it's like looking back and just reflecting, yeah. like we have made this significant progress. Like I could ride every bus in the country, you know, most stores or restaurants I can get into or I can at least make the choice of where I'm going to spend my money. Yeah. Um, you know, the thought of my daughter going to a segregated school bust miles away, you know, I know that that's not a reality yes. <laughs> right now. Um, but I won't say everything is perfect either. We still have a long way to go in yeah. every area, yeah. in transportation, in community-based services, um, in full inclusion. So, but it does kind of keep me hopeful to just see the progress that's been made over the last 30 years, just in my own lifetime. I love yeah. it. Well, I wonder if we can dive into a little bit of both independent living philosophy, but also just the birth of the independent living movement. And I wonder if you could just talk about Berkeley a little bit and maybe a story mm -hmm. or two from, from that birth of independent living. Yeah. So, yeah, so Berkeley is one of the places that has really been seen as the birthplace of the independent living movement, um, really started in many ways by the lived experience of Ed Roberts, who was a man with polio and... Um, wanted to get into school at UC Berkeley and was very discriminated against because of his significant disability. He used a power wheelchair, he was on a ventilator, slept in an iron lung at night, and was forced to live in the hospital, not the dorm, right. and denied in many aspects of his education. And, you know, I think that was really transformational in so many ways because um, it was a time when disabled people were really starting to to reclaim their identities, independence, um, freedom from the medical model of disability, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that we needed to be cured and fixed um, and more, quote, normal, um, a rejection of the charity model that yeah. we needed pity, we needed... No pity. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we needed money right. in order to live, and it was really about just reclaiming ourselves as disabled people in a movement that we owned and yeah. directed, right? And really, you know, fighting off 
the decades and the very long history of discrimination against disabled people, institutionalization, segregation in literally all aspects of American life, right? right. From employment to transportation to recreation to accommodations to education, you name it, to community yeah. living. And, you know, we're still fighting that even today. Yeah. And then I think the disability rights movement um, took so much from the fight for civil rights and really disabled people being seen as a protected class, disability yes. rights as civil rights, as yes. human rights, right? And also realization that disability is also universal. <laughs> All of us yeah. are going to be touched by disability at some point That's in our right. lives, right? Yeah. Yeah. right? Whether we age, accident, injury, illness, you know, our family members. I, yeah. I think that we don't often think about that enough, about how the work that we're doing to fight for disability rights is really about all of us. Yes, yeah, yes, absolutely. it's about all of us, you know. And that was what, you know, this group at Berkeley started doing. They brought together all of these different folks uh, from all across the country, people with disabilities who said, we wanted to go to college, we want to be able to have access like everyone else, and started living together inside of the university and building community of, of disabled people. Uh, but they also started fighting for their rights in really unique ways. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my favorite stories is, uh, you know, they made friends with these football players um, and they got something passed that said any time that this is before curb cuts existed. And so any time that they had to redo the sidewalk, the city said, OK, we'll add in curb cuts. Well, that's great. But how often do you really redo sidewalks? <laughs> And so what they did was they went around with sledgehammers and these football yeah. players. And so it was people with, uh, you know, wheelchair users yeah. and these big burly football players with sledgehammers in the middle of the night busting up uh, sidewalks right. so that the city had to go in and add curb cuts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but breaking not, barriers. Breaking yeah. barriers. <laughs> literally, 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 yes. Yeah. Well, and, and that was what birthed this independent living movement. And they got together and they created a center, the first center yeah. for independent living. Absolutely, yeah. was started in Berkeley, and and Access Living followed that. And you know, Marka Bristow was our founder, and went out to Berkeley in the '70s to see what was happening there because it was a revolution in yes. so many ways. That are this idea of a center where that was run and governed by disabled people, for disabled people, with disabled people about self-determination, self-control, people directing their own lives yes. and the services that they need, providing peer support to each other is really yeah. a foundational principle of the independent living movement, right? That it's, again, going back to that rejection of like, it's medical professionals telling it what's best for us, yeah. right? And about disabled people helping each other. Yes. And um, we may not all have the same disability, but there's common threads that run through our mm -hmm. experience as disabled people around discrimination and barriers that we face and perceptions, you know, that that was really, really important. It still is a very important principle yeah. of independent living is disabled people making decisions and supporting each other. Yes. Mm -hmm. And now there are centers for independent living all across the country. Yeah. One right here in Chicago. What are some of the core services that independent living centers provide or, or that you provide here at Access Living? Sure. So we're all federally funded and state funded and um, have required core services that we need to provide as centers for independent living. Um, so those are independent living services. So 
really the idea, again, around self-direction, that disabled people are deciding for themselves what they need, where they want to live, the types of supports that they need in the community. Um, So that is a core service. Advocacy is another core service. Mm -hmm. So this idea that we really need to break down the systemic barriers that keep disabled people uh, marginalized and oppressed and segregated and prevented from living self-directed, fulfilling lives. And so I think for us, that's a really, really important principle is also that connection between advocacy and direct services Mm -hmm. because we cannot do advocacy or policy reform helping to fight systems that keep people with disabilities out or segregated if we don't hear um, from disabled people themselves yeah you know without hearing that day-to-day lived experience over and over again we wouldn't be effective authentic advocates to push for more affordable, accessible housing in our city, right? And working with the Housing Authority and the city of Chicago and the state at all different levels to to fight for that. So well, and I think the tell tell our listeners about the makeup of your staff and your board and what's mm-hmm. required in order to have a Center for Independent Living grant from uh, from the Department of Education. Right. So we're required to be um, a majority people with disabilities on our board. So we have about sixty percent of our board identifies as a person with a disability, and our board members come from all sectors. They're yeah. They're disabled people who have received services from us. They're people in corporate America. They're people that run um, organizations or at universities. Um, So we have a really um, diverse board, um, but a majority do have disabilities. And so I think having the fact that we're run and led and governed by majority people with disabilities really does make us unique. So... You know, I think that's another core, important foundational principle of the independent living movement is really that self-direction and the leadership of disabled people at all levels within the organization. And you Um, truly live it because it's not, it's your board, but also isn't it like 65% of your staff are people with disabilities? Yeah, a large number of our staff, um, varying disabilities, you know, people with physical, sensory, um, mobility, um, intellectual disabilities, um, you name it, and in all levels of the organization as well. Yeah. And you have close to 80 staff members? Uh, here, 70. Right? Staff. 70, mm-hmm. 70, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. You know, and I think that one of the things that you guys makes you a leader is from everything and in every way you guys are thinking about those of us with disabilities. We just got in an incredible tour of this building. I wonder if you could talk about some of just the physical aspects of accessibility that you guys have been so innovative in uh, uh, here at Access Living. So we're now 42 years old as an organization. We were founded in 1980 and our first office was a storefront on the street right down here (laughs) on South Street. Yeah. Yeah. And we've just grown over the years. And now we own our own building that we built in 2007 right here in downtown Chicago. We are a universally designed green lead gold building and um, really wanted to kind of pull together and marry the concepts of environmental design with accessibility. And I think what's really great about this building is that in many ways, 
it was designed by disabled people. Yes. Mm-hmm. So we led a lot of listening sessions by people that would receive services in our building and come to our building with different types of disabilities. We did listening sessions with other organizations that had interesting universal design elements. And so I think it's really a great example of inclusion and accessibility in ways that you don't even like visibly immediately see, Yeah. right? So we really tried to make the accessibility features seamless. So things yeah. like color contrast on the walls or flooring and how we think about that in terms of wayfinding. We were very intentional about the carpet that was going to be usable for people with mobility disabilities, but also for people with sensory disabilities as well. Um, Thinking about things like lighting and ease of moving throughout the building. We have bathrooms with no doors, for example. We have push buttons at all of our conference rooms. Which, by the way, the bathrooms, you know, no doors on the bathroom. It's great to be able to, for the ease of getting in. But also, when I get done using the bathroom, I don't actually really want to touch a door handle. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, right? Especially in this COVID era, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that was another thing, I think. Maybe we're ahead of our times because I had so many people tell me during the pandemic, like, I use those push button doors with my elbow because I don't want to touch door handles. Yeah. Or I want the automatic faucets that we have in our bathroom because people don't want to turn on the handles of the sink. Um, And so thinking about all these little details that are universal design elements that you tend not to think about, like... You know, even our front desk reception is lowered for everybody. You know, even though the ADA says you can have higher, but you also must have a lower section. You know, we want it universal for everybody. Yeah. And so there's just a lot of those just details and, you know, automatic shades that go down that are light sensitive, uh, motion sensored lighting in all of our rooms that save energy, but also someone's not even flicking a light switch. Right. You're just wheeling into a room and the lights go on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We have a green roof with a beautiful rooftop patio, yeah. um, which I was happy to host yeah. you <laughs> up there, even yeah. though it was the weather wasn't great. But to be able to have like a rooftop space that an elevator goes to yeah. and, you know, large percentage of that patio being green roof, which helps with cooling of the building as well. Sure. And then downstairs we have a parking garage with a shower and a bike rack to encourage you know, alternative modes of transportation and people being able to think about the different ways in which they might come to the building. So there's a lot of green requirements that we discovered as we were building the building that are also universal design accessible um, features too. And so now we're kind of thinking post-pandemic about what does the future of the workplace look like for people with disabilities, right? So we have our structures built, universal design and green, and now we're thinking and reimagining what our internal spaces look like in a post-pandemic hybrid world where people want to work in a more hybrid space. Digital is increasingly the way we're having meetings. Yeah, Um, yeah. But how we also foster more collaboration and community building within Mm -hmm. our physical space as well. And you guys did a lot of work, not only for your staff to be able to access a hybrid environment from devices, but also the people that you're serving too, because that is, that was just a reality in COVID. That's right. And that was really one of the big disparities that we saw Mm -hmm. during the pandemic was the disability digital divide and how many of our consumers just 
I think much of it driven by poverty, do not have internet connectivity, do not have laptops or other devices, don't have emails, digital literacy, Mm -hmm. um, and how that really has closed out so many of our community members. And so we worked on a pilot program this summer where we received a small grant and we wanted to kind of test this out and evaluate it. But um, we were able to purchase 25 refurbished laptops and get internet connectivity for our consumers who had neither, neither. Wow. Wow. None. Yeah. (laughs) And um, And many of us probably listeners on the podcast couldn't even imagine having no internet or no connectivity because that's that's how you access the world now. Yes. So... Yeah, and during the pandemic, most of them were calling into meetings on the phone, right? Yeah. Um, they weren't on a screen, and so you basically saw a screen with phone number after phone number after phone number, no faces. And it was very telling to us about just how deep this digital divide is. And so we really tried to address it, and we're looking at scaling this up now. And I think as we think about going in a more hybrid way for our staff, we really need to think about how we also offer more options for our consumers to receive services from Access Living. So not just coming through our doors and maybe taking a bus or a train to get here, but how can we also offer uh, more comprehensive services um, through digital platforms? But we can't do that unless people have access um, to the digital space. and. So it's really, that's going to be a really, really important thing for us to, to really focus on over yeah. the next few years. Well, and I, and I think one of the beauties of Centers for Independent Living, I, I worked for a Center for Independent Living in North Carolina and really had my introduction to being a person with a disability from the independent living movement uh, and, you know, walking down the street with hundreds of people with disabilities around me holding signs and saying, our homes, not nursing yeah. homes. And yes. our fight for justice and equality, and and for the first time seeing my disability as uh, the beautiful thing and part of my identity that it was, and independent living gave that to me. But it was because of the diversity of what you guys offer to the disability community. It's not just this one thing and this one service, but it's you're able to be flexible and meet people's needs where they are. And I I wonder if you could just talk about you guys do more programs and diversity of programs than probably any other service provider that I can think of. And I wonder if you could just talk about some of those. Yeah, and I think you're really right in what you just said there because – You know, every center for independent living is different, right? Some of us are in urban centers. Some of us are in suburban communities. Others are in very rural parts. Mm -hmm. And so centers really need to respond to what the issues are in their communities. Mm -hmm. And while we all are obligated to provide these five core services, the types of services or the issues that we focus on or respond to may be different. Yes, and, so, and should be different. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And so I think that's one of the great things about, and so beautiful about the independent living movement yeah. is that we are very focused on each of our communities. So yeah, we do a lot of programming. We do direct services, we do peer support, um, we do advocacy and policy reform. And those are threads through different issue areas. So housing is huge because mm-hmm. I would say housing is the number one issue, particularly in an urban area right. like Chicago. The need for affordable housing is just, it's 
huge. It's it's a yeah. dire issue. It's a crisis. So we're a certified fair housing organization. Um, so we do a lot of fair housing testing. We help people defend their rights to get access to housing. Yes. Um, we do a lot of community organizing and policy work around the fight to get more affordable, fair, and accessible housing in Chicago. We do. We help actively get people out of nursing homes. Yes. Unfortunately, we have a lot of work to do in our state of Illinois to really have more home and community-based services. Right. But we are working every day to help move people out, get them set up in households, um, you know, to become participants in the community and bring su- peer support services to them. We do a lot of policy work at the state level as well, legislative work. Uh, we have a very strong youth team where we're working on um, so youth good. empowerment and transition work on helping young people with disabilities find their way, help them with things like employment or post-secondary um, independent living. We're working a lot in the area of racial justice and making sure that all of the work that we do has a racial justice overlay, um, but also we're working actively on a lot of different initiatives to support black and brown disabled people who are a majority of the folks that we serve here in Chicago. So we're doing work around criminal justice reform. We work with immigrants with disabilities and their rights and community organizing around that. But then we're also doing policy work around education, transportation. But again, we can be nimble and responsive. And I would say our biggest focus over the last two years was was COVID, was, mm-hmm. wow. you know, yeah. responding to COVID, making sure that disabled people had access to vaccines, PPE, um, <laughs> that we had policies at our state level yes. that protected the lives of people with disabilities. Yes. So, you know, we worked with our governor's office on crisis standards of care that would um, protect people on the basis of disability and race when we had situations of our ICUs getting at capacity and how Mm -hmm. are we triaging who's going to get served in a way that's non-discriminatory. So we worked to get guidance um, pushed out from the governor's office on that, as well as reasonable accommodation to visitor policies during COVID because you know, hospitals weren't letting in um, PAs or sign language interpreters or things that disabled people need. Um, So we worked to make sure that those were guidances that were issued to every medical facility throughout the state. We also put together probably one of the most comprehensive resource pages on COVID as well. And Mm. that's still on our website. And really from A to Z, Every type of resource that you might need during the pandemic, we were putting out there and pushing out. And then we worked on really trying to get disabled people equitable access to vaccines. And we got disabled people prioritized higher on the list throughout our state. But then, you know, the work still continued around getting the word out about access to vaccines and vaccination sites and boosters. And so now we're really looking at kind of that next phase of the pandemic and thinking about long COVID and folks that are living with long COVID. There's over 400,000 people in Illinois that are living with long COVID. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as you know, President Biden talked about this and people meeting the definition of disability. And so we feel that we have an important role in terms of 
supporting people with disabilities in the area of any type of supports that they might need, even though they may not recognize themselves yeah. that they actually have a disability. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. There's um, maybe some disability identity work to do for for long COVID folks for sure. Yeah. So, Karen, you talked a little bit about the digital divide. What about the economic divide that you see mm-hmm. in uh, for people with disabilities and in their experience? Yeah, I think that's the the through line in the disability community is poverty, yeah. right? The fact that disability is a condition that can lead you into poverty right. and poverty can lead to disability, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think that that is the one thing we really have yet to address is the economic gap. Um, but then even on top of that, the disability racial wealth gap, yes. which is also um, very, very wide, very troubling as well. So that is one of our primary new strategic goals is economic justice and opportunity and figuring out how we can tackle those systemic barriers that keep disabled people in poverty, prevent them from having financial stability or wealth building, um, things like benefit traps and asset limits and income limits that you can't save money and you can't avail yourself to other economic opportunities without the fear of losing benefits and what comes with that. And so that's huge. And the fact that we still have sub-minimum wage is still legal in many states (laughs) throughout our country. You know, just the barriers are pretty far and wide. And so we're really looking at how can we tackle this very, very troubling economic gap, disability poverty from multiple angles, from both advocacy and policy reform to remove systemic barriers, but also from the individual one-on-one supports, like things like credit repair and credit building and getting people banking with more mainstream financial institutions, you know, and rolling in able accounts that can support some wealth building for some folks with disabilities to thinking about lending circles as ways to build credit. Um, And then also we're working a lot with employers on disability inclusion practices. Yeah. Mm, so yes. thinking about their hiring, retention, promotion of folks with disabilities into yeah. their companies. And we're definitely seeing an increase in demands from employers wanting more yes. um, support and assistance around disability inclusion practices. And also the intersect of disability and race and other communities too and so we're doing a lot of work in that space and then also digitally since websites and digital spaces are the front doors of many employers many of them are wanting support on how to make those digital platforms and front doors more accessible so we're doing that as well so that's kind of our really approach that we're going to be looking at um, over the next several years to really try to tackle poverty. So um, powerful. Yeah. Yeah. If folks are interested in accessing a center for independent living and all of these services that you just talked about, 
how can they find it and who qualifies? Because I think that's a really powerful part of Centers for Independent Living is who qualifies for for services from you guys. Right. I mean, we serve disabled people and that's it. We don't we don't <laughs> so ask good. your disability type. We don't ask your immigration status. We don't ask any of those questions. You have a disability, we serve you. And yeah. for most services, yeah, yeah. And for most services, we've got to go through such a long line and a waiting list and process and paperwork and all this sort of stuff. Before. Right, and, but to say that there is an organization that just says, if you have a disability, we serve you, it's so powerful. Yeah, exactly. And um, if people are interested in finding where they're local, center is um, the National Council on Independent Living, which is our umbrella organization. On their website, you can look state by state to find the center near you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the, we're all over the country and we're a tremendous resource. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, you are a tremendous resource and the, the what Centers for Independent Living have done for the disability rights movement and for those of us with disabilities, I don't think we could overstate it. Unfortunately, and this is the issue that we're addressing today, many people don't have access to a Center for Independent Living. There is not adequate funding for uh, CILs uh, in the federal budget. If you could talk to a policymaker, and I know you talk to policymakers all the time, <laughs> if you could sit down with them and say, what would you say to them right now as it relates to that problem? Independent living centers are huge assets to every community. Mm-hmm. And it's an organization that, like I said, is something that everyone is going to need at some point in their lives. And the work that we're doing, whether it's direct services or advocacy or peer support, we are making the world a better place yes. for everybody as we age, mm-hmm. um, as we have family members that acquire disabilities or they age. And so people can't think of the work that we're doing as you know, a specialty organization yeah. <laughs> over on the sidelines that only serves one small segment of the population. Right. Yeah, um, it's for we, everybody. There's a billion disabled people worldwide, right? Yes. What, one in four people right. in this country have a disability? The explosion of people living with COVID now? Yes. Um, I think we're needed now more than ever. Yes. And we need to think forward about the role that Centers for Independent Living play in communities in cities, to families, and we're here when you need us, right? Yes. You may not need us over the long haul, but whether you have resources or you don't have resources, people need us. Yes. Um, yeah. And so I think we are a huge value and a huge asset to our country. Yes. Karen, thank you so much. Thank you. Wow, what an incredible interview with Karen Tamley. She is such an advocate and has so much that she's brought to the lives of people with disabilities in our society and our community. And the work that she's doing at Access Living is just incredible. As you can see, Centers for Independent Living play a valuable role in our society and in the service system as a whole. The work that they do around advocacy and workshops and training and for youth and for housing assistance and transportation, the list just goes on and on. They are so valuable. And I think that we demonstrated that today. So we want to end out by giving you, our listeners, three things that you can do to have an impact as it relates to this. 
we do this every time and we always start with something what that you can do as an individual. What can you individually do to ensure that you're taking action after hearing this awesome interview? So the first thing that you can do as an individual is you can spread the IL philosophy. IL philosophy says that we as people with disabilities have inherent value and we want to ensure that we're not trying to fix us, but that we're recognizing that society and the environment around us, when it uh, is changed, we can live full and productive lives in our society. And so that is a poor job of explaining IL philosophy, but I think we just did it. So let's go out there and let's explain IL philosophy. Let's make sure that people recognize that it's not that I uh, should be able to walk but it's that there aren't curb cuts. That's why I can't get around. And so a recognition that the change that needs to happen is in society. And I think that that's huge. The second thing that we always like to give to folks is how can you have a systematic impact on this issue? Well, systematically, we need more centers for independent living. You know, in my home state of North Carolina, there are still places where you can't get access to a Center for Independent Living. We need additional funding to ensure that Centers for Independent Living are accessible to everyone throughout the United States. And so we're encouraging all of you guys to go online and to check out your member of Congress. And we'll give you some links inside at gtindependence.com where you can check that out. But we would encourage you to contact your congressman, tell them how valuable Centers for Independent Living are, and tell them that we need increased funding, both uh, national funding, but also state funding. States can contribute to this as well. So we would encourage all of you guys to go out there, contact your member of Congress, contact your local legislator, and tell them how important the independent living movement is and Centers for Independent Living are. And then last but not least, we always want to tell you about an organization that you can contribute to that is having a huge impact on the issue that we're looking at today. Today, it's super easy. Access Living uh, is having a huge impact in the city of Chicago and in that region, in that area. We would really encourage you guys to contribute to them financially. Uh, we are also a contributor to Access Living and, uh, and the work that they're doing in Chicago. And we encourage you to support that and to support their vision of a world where people with disabilities are respected and that it's a natural part of the human experience and seen as a natural part of the human experience. Thank you all. Thank you for being a part of the Disability Garrison. Thank you for being a part of the awesome work that we're doing and the impact that we're having throughout the world. We're grateful for each one of you.